And uh, I would uh, like to dismiss the kids, uh, the children's church. You guys can head over there. And also, while they're making their way out, I would like to ask if one person... Oh, you know what? I, I do need one person to stand up and pray for the sermon. Could I get that volunteer real quick? Is there anyone that would be willing to stand up? Okay, Anna. Now, wait a second there, Anna. I also want to welcome back Jerabel James. Uh, Jerabel got married two weeks ago today, so she just like came right back off the honeymoon. Uh, and she came and did her job at church, and I don't know, I guess, right? And while she was in Orlando, she bought me these coconut snacks that are only sold in Orlando and Akron, Ohio, randomly. And so uh, I really appreciate you, Jerabel. You're my favorite person in this church. Uh, Till someone else goes to Orlando. All right, uh, Anna, would you mind praying for us and for the sermon? Amen. Amen. Today we're starting a series on our church's vision and values. And I mentioned this earlier in the announcements, but I'm really excited because not only are we doing this, but our kids are doing it. The Children's Church at both campuses are going through our church's values, which are right uh, behind you on this sign that says we value, but also we're going to have it uh, on the slide slides behind me in a moment. Uh, but the reason we're doing that is simple. It's because we want to be reminded of what, of our identity as a church. You know, the, I mean, there's churches all over the place, right? We have, we're right here. We ourselves have another building and campus a mile and a half away. There's a church, uh, uh, um, the Paul, something about uh, uh, Holy Innocent St. Paul Episcopal Church. That's a hard name to remember, but there it is. Uh, there's there's uh, St. Matthew's, a Roman Catholic, up near where I live. Uh, Shay and Abby's son, I don't know if I should say the name of the church, where he's in day school, daycare. Should I just, just drop all your personal information? Uh, there, you know, uh, that's um, a uh, church, uh, Methodist church up in Mayfair. Johnson Memorial. Uh, there's Northeast Community Church up at Tyson and Roland. There is a church... Uh, of the Fujianese right next to my house, which is just for people from a certain province in China. I think anyone can go there, but they focus on them. There's churches all over the place, right? So what makes one church distinct from another? Because ultimately, shouldn't we all agree on a whole bunch of stuff? Really? Shouldn't, shouldn't most churches agree on the important stuff, like who Jesus was and is, uh, the, the authority of the Bible and things like that? But then there are also things that make churches unique and individual. And it's not something to divide a church, but it's something to give each church a unique expression. So some of those would be our vision and values. Our values, uh, right here on the screen, the living and active word of God, anointed worship, spirit-led prayer, authentic relationships, and kingdom growth or multiplication. See, these are True Vine's five values. You could kind of picture this as like our fingerprint. There's no other church in the world that I know of that has these values. These were not copied from anyone. They were not borrowed from anyone. And no one has seen fit to copy them from us that I'm aware of. So these are distinctly ours, at least the, the way that it's organized. Now, I don't think we're the only church that values the word of God or prayer or worship or relationships or kingdom growth. I, I wouldn't say that we're the only churches that value those things. But not every church would include those in their values, and some churches would include other things that we have not included, right? And I don't know anyone that would word it, that has worded five values exactly the way that we've, that we've worded them. So we're going to spend five weeks on those because that is essentially what makes True Vine, True Vine. It's kind of our secret sauce, if that makes sense. It's, it's our church's identity, and so uh, I think it's important for us to know that. Now... There's another reason that I think it's important for us to understand these values, and that's because I think that these five values will contribute or facilitate an atmosphere of revival in a church or in a household or in a neighborhood. Uh, most of you have been to my house. Raise your hand if you've been to my house. 
okay, those of you that haven't, I've got to get you there at some point. Uh, because I would like to be able to say everybody in our church has been to my house at some point. So uh, I think about 75% of the church has been in my house, which is why it's so dirty. Um, but at the back of my house this summer, I put together a really simple, rickety greenhouse. I built it on the back of my uh, garage. And I took, uh, there's this website for women, it's called Pinterest. And uh, it's all these creative, unique ideas uh, for women to tell their husbands to do. And uh, one of them was building a greenhouse out of old, uh, old windows. And so we, we have old windows and also, we have old everything at our church. Uh, everything we have is, you know, Old Testament even. So over at Wissanome, we had all these old windows in one of the house basements. I went and grabbed them all and configured a, a small little greenhouse. It's not very big. It's just uh, a little bit deeper than one of these pews and about as wide as half a pew, a little bigger than that. But it's just enough to fit some potted plants because I have basically nowhere to plant a garden. And I love planting gardens. So I built that greenhouse it's right on the back of my garage so that when I open my garage door, I step out into this lush greenhouse. And uh, the whole thing is basically windows and glass. Uh, I, you know, I can stand out there in the rain and not get rained on. I'm kinda, I don't know if I'll keep it up all winter, but I'm kind of looking forward to the first snow, being able to stand out in the snow and not get snowed on and run space heaters in there so that I can be like 65 degrees while it's snowing and I'll just dance around like this. Uh, uh, like from that new Drake video, if you've seen that. Yeah. Abby, found out who likes Drake. All right. Um, but I have this greenhouse, and, you know, it's, uh, it's October 25th. We've already had a, a freeze in this area, and I'm still growing tomatoes, peppers, mint, and beans. Uh, and that's actually why you have a greenhouse. It's to extend the growing season. Now, my mom professionally manages five or six greenhouses. That's what she does for a living. So I'm always asking her for advice. And my greenhouse is not, like she, her greenhouses are like as big as a sanctuary. She has like five or six of them. They're, actually, they're bigger than this. So she has five or six, each one being bigger than this room. Uh, she grows plants that are sent all over the wor uh, country or world. And uh, so mine is not like that. But in her greenhouses, she can control the climate and the temperature all year long so that they can grow things all year long. They get sunlight. They keep it a nice, it's like 70 degrees. Uh, it's really nice actually to walk in there in the winter and it's nice and warm. It's a little humid, uh, but there's plants growing even like, you know, Christmas time. Uh, even though up where she lives, they get, you know, uh, eight, nine feet of snow every winter. And, you know, what sets a greenhouse apart is the fact that the atmosphere inside the greenhouse is different than the atmosphere outside the greenhouse, right? Now, mine, my little one, because it has perfectly clear windows, if it's raining outside, I can see it raining, but I'm not getting wet. You know, if, if I'm running some heaters, it can be cold outside, but not as cold inside. It's not, it doesn't get like toasty in there, but it can stay warm enough. Uh, if it's snowing outside, it doesn't have to be snowing inside. Uh, when it's windy outside, this is one of the great things about it, when it's windy outside, it's not windy inside. It doesn't blow any plants over or snap any leaves or branches or anything like that. So a greenhouse enables you to have a totally different atmosphere but still be present right there. And I think that actually that's part of the assignment of Jesus' church is to serve as a, almost like a greenhouse in their context where the atmosphere here is not necessarily affected by the atmosphere there. Does that make sense? That, and I'm not talking specifically about the building, although it would make sense that if we are all full of the Holy Spirit and, and following Jesus, that the atmosphere in the building would be different too. But even as groups of individuals gather, you would expect that the atmosphere among a group of Christians would be different than the atmosphere among a group of people who do not profess to follow Jesus, right? That the atmosphere would be different. I mean, you guys, I know you've all experienced this. You walk into a group or you walk into a room and you just kind of feel what's going on. You, you, you discern it or you pick up a vibe, right? Am I the only one that 
walks in and people get awkward. I mean, I, I, this happens to me all the time. I walk into a conversation and everyone's like, Hoo. and then I, I perceive tension. No one said, I am tense now. I just perceive the tension. Uh, I think this is fascinating. I do enough weddings and funerals and things like that and visit enough people in the hospital. It's amazing how a thin little wall can separate the atmosphere. You know, I can be inside a funeral home and everyone's somber and mourning and grieving. If I step outside of a 12-inch wall, it's, it's life as usual, right? Um, same with a, it being in a hospital. I mean, a, you can be in someone's hospital room or visiting them and the, the, the atmosphere is one way and then you step out and it's, it's totally something totally different. It's, it could be chaos out in the hallway and completely peaceful or somber on the inside. And so I think the church, part of the church's assignment is to serve in a, in a way as a greenhouse that cultivates revival, an at, creating an atmosphere that is conducive to revival. And I think these five values are all conducive to revival. I think if we did all five of these things, we could see sustainable revival in our church and in our community. And I say sustainable revival because I'm not interested in like having two or three good years and then like thinking about the glory days for the rest of my life. I want to see a church that is going through and experiencing sustainable revival and renewal. Uh, there's a couple things that I can do in my greenhouse to set the atmosphere. I can, I have, my roof panels are movable, so I can have two or three or one or none. I can move the roof panels around. Uh, if it's raining and I'd rather not spend my own money on water, I take the roof panels off and I let the rain come in. I can put the panels back up. I can plug in heaters. I can run heat lamps. Sometimes I put a fan out there because you do want, you want your leaves to move a little bit. There's a, there's a bunch of different things I can do to set the atmosphere in that greenhouse. These are five things that we can do to set the atmosphere here in the church so that it's conducive to revival. Does that make sense? So... As much as I do plug in a ton of fans in the summer around here, that doesn't help set the atmosphere for revival. These things do. These are practical things that we can do. So today we're going to focus on that first one up there. It's bold. It's, like, it's a little more bold than the other ones. The living and active Word of God, okay? A.K.A. the Bible. But I'm going to explain why I chose that terminology. We all good so far? You got the, you got the greenhouse illustration there? Okay, good. Um, so today we're going to focus on the living and active Word of God. I want to tell you a little bit of my story because uh, I think it will explain why we choose this terminology and not just say the Bible. Although the, if you want to say the Bible, that's fine. But uh, my personal testimony, my personal relationship with Jesus is not the story of, of someone who was in addiction or in immorality or was abused, I didn't experience any of that. I never got into drugs, I never got into alcohol, I never uh, was popular with girls. Um, uh, I just didn't get into that stuff. What my problem was is I was super religious and super proud of it. I was a Pharisee, and I still struggle with that at times. Uh, you know, I was... Very churchy, and I let people know about it. Um, and when I went off, and, well, before I went to college, I, I did a thing in high school called Bible quizzing. Has anyone ever heard of that? Well, see, if you were as spiritual as me, you would. Dan, did you, have you heard of it? Okay, Dan's heard of it. Bible quizzing was essentially a competition about who knew the Bible better. Now, if you'd have said it that way at the time, no one would have done it, but that's, uh, they tricked us. Uh, we, would, we would pick a book or two from the New Testament every year. I remember one year we did Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter, and you were to memorize those books. And they would put you on a team with four or five other people, and you would compete against two other teams, and there would be 20 questions, and we were given a... We had seats that had, I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. This is really what we did in Western Pennsylvania for fun. That and tip cows. We had seats that had sensors in them. And there'd be 12 or 15 of us lined up in a semicircle, which is why I still set the chairs up that way. 
And you'd be sitting on it and they'd ask a question according to James 1, 4, blah, blah, blah. And the first person to jump up, their light would go off and they could answer the question and get 20 points. And we went through 20 questions and uh, I did that for years, Bible quizzing. I have multiple trophies with a cross on top of it for knowing the Bible. And so when I went to Bible college, I thought, this is going to be sweet. Um, And I was a Bible major at a Bible college with multiple Bible trophies. I'm just saying you guys are lucky to have me around. That's my point. And my freshman year, man, I just... I. It was total culture shock for me, and I just started letting people have it. Like, well, the Bible says this. And, you know, the Bible says that it's the sword of the Spirit, right? In Ephesians, the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. I thought that meant I could use it as a weapon. And I started beating people with the Bible and hurting people with the Bible. And not in a, like, not in a loving way. I wasn't lovingly trying to correct them. I was proving how much I knew. And... Uh, my sophomore year, I mean, I, I actually was really a jerk and I got a bad reputation on campus and people didn't want to talk to me or share their personal problems with me or anything like that. And I still sometimes fall into that. Uh, but my sophomore year, I was in a class, the class was on the Holy Spirit. And I was actually arguing, you know, we, the class was called the Holy Spirit and the Gifts. And I was arguing with the professor against the gifts being something that the spiritual gifts being present or active today. I was making an argument against it because I really didn't believe that most of them were active. And uh, I treated the professor so poorly. I was disrespectful. Um, It's one of the main things I'm ashamed of, actually, from my years in college. I'm not ashamed of a lot of things I did. Uh, I'm ashamed of that. And this guy in the front row who I barely knew... I remember this one day I just was really like hammering the professor. And he was actually doing an excellent job defending his view, but I wasn't hearing it and I wasn't having it. And I was really just disrespectful about the whole thing. This one guy in the front row must have gotten really fed up with me because he spun around and he was like all sweaty. I remember for some reason I remember how sweaty he was. Now I'm the sweaty guy. And he spun around and he quoted the Bible to me about how much I worshiped the Bible. And he quoted from James chapter 5, verse 39, and he said, Jesus told the Pharisees that you study the scripture because you think that in it you will find eternal life, but it is the scriptures that speak of Jesus. And I guess the timing was just right and the Holy Spirit was using it because it immediately hit me. And he was right. And, and I had been guilty of something that we called bible olatry, which is where I was actually probably worshiping the Bible more than I was worshiping God. Right. I was worshiping the Word of God and not the God of the Word. Oh, you like that. Okay. Well, they didn't really get that. It was annoying. So I'm glad you guys liked it. Um, Now, this is a real tightrope that you have to walk because you actually want to have a high level of reverence and respect for the authority of this book. But this book is not God. It just contains the most reliable revelation of God. And, And I will say that all of God is not contained in this book, but all of this book is contained in God. So... So there's more to God than what's in the Bible. If he put it all down, there would be no room for it, right? I mean, if if everything you could write about God had been written, we'd have no room for the volumes that it would fill. So he gave us what was essential and what we needed to understand him and salvation. Now, there is nothing about God that is true that will contradict this book. You got that? You're not going to find anything out about God that, is, that, you, that will contradict this book. And if you find something out that seems to contradict the book, you either misunderstand it or it's just not true. 
So this is our primary and most authoritative source about God, but this is not God. Is that everyone okay with that? Okay. It took me a long time to figure that out, so I just want to make sure that I, I'm trying to give it to you in like three minutes. All right. So when I select this terminology, the living and active word of God, instead of just putting the Bible, that my background is one of the reasons I choose those terms. Also, because Hebrews 4.12 when, it, when the Bible talks about itself, it describes itself this way. And uh, the next, two, go two slides up for me, Shay. Yeah, thank you. This is Hebrews 4.12. This is actually the verse. If I stole these values from anywhere, it was the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the writer says, For the word of God is living and active. Does that sound familiar? The living and active word of God? We just switched it around for copyright reasons. That was a joke. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and, it, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, th this passage actually says five things about God's word. And that's, I'm just going to really quickly fly through those. Uh, the first, it says that God's word is living. And here's what I, what I think of when I say the living word of God that I can read the same passage a hundred times, but on the hundred and first time, for some reason, it just lights up. The Bible is a living document. It's not a dead document. It's a living document. It is, it is open to interpretation as guided by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, about three weeks ago, I had an encounter with God through Psalm 37. I've read Psalm 37 more times than I could tell you, but for some reason that day and that moment, Psalm 37 just kind of came alive to me and jumped right off on the stage. So when we say it's a living document, that's what we mean, that you can read it, read and reread and reread, and because the author, the Holy Spirit, is present, he can teach you what the book means. You got that? Have you all had that experience? Like, I've read this 20 times, and for some reason today it jumped out at me. Okay, enough of you have. As you continue reading the Bible, you just continue to have those experiences. Um, it's living and it's active. Uh, the Greek word that's used there for active, active is energes, which is the word we get energy from. It's the word we get energized from. So you could actually even just, just put, it is living and energizing. I want you to think about this. When God created the world... How did he do it? He spoke, right? He didn't gather some dust because that would be counterproductive because if the dust was already there, then where'd that dust come from, right? He didn't get water because if the water was already there, where'd that come from? He spoke. He activated the cosmos and created with his words, right? If you remember Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel standing in a valley, if you know the story, He's standing in a valley, and the valley's full of what? Does anyone remember? Dry bones, right? The valley is full of dry bones, and God tells Ezekiel to do what to bring the dry bones to life? Speak. Or he actually says prophesy, which is speak. He doesn't, if it was me, I'd have been like, throw some water on them. They're dry. Then they'll grow up to be people again. Or sprinkle some dust on them, because we made Adam out of dust. But he didn't say that. He said, speak. And so Ezekiel delivered the word of God through his own mouth and it activated or energized these dry bones and they turned into a whole army. And Lazarus, when Lazarus was dead, what did Jesus do to resurrect Lazarus? He didn't spit in mud. He didn't lay hands on him. He just spoke. He just said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus' voice, or that would be the word of God, activated a dead person just brought him back to life. So when we say the, the living and active word of God or that the word of God is active or energizing, that's what we're referring to it. Just the word itself activates or energizes dead things. It's sharp. The word of God is sharp. I found that when the Lord speaks to me through scripture or personally to myself, when it's the Lord, it is precise. It's not cloudy. It's not vague. Uh, it's not misty, it's, it's precise 
and it cuts. It cuts through all the BS. It cuts through all the objections. It cuts through all of that stuff and gets really right down to the heart of the matter. So I know that if I'm waiting to hear from God on something and I'm still a little cloudy, what that tells me is I still have not heard yet. Not to say he hasn't spoke, spoken, but I just haven't heard yet. And so until I have that crystal clear, sharp uh, word from the Lord, I have to keep waiting, put my, put my face in the Bible, because that's, the I would say, the primary way he speaks. Uh, and look, uh, so it's living, it's active, it's sharp, and then it's piercing, or in some translations it'll say it is penetrating. It goes beyond the surface. It's, it permeates you. It gets below the surface. If you spend enough time in God's word, eventually it starts to come out of you and you don't even know why. Like passages that you didn't try to memorize just kind of spill out of you, or stories or references. You just kind of soak in it so that when you get squeezed, it comes out and it goes below the surface of your life as you spend time in it. And uh, it judges. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Because uh, the Bible is not... Uh, simply a list, of, a list of external behaviors. It, it gets into your motives and your attitudes and your intentions and it judges those things. And it's not, in most cases, it is not really our place to judge, but Scripture, God through Scripture, judges situations and circumstances and decisions and attitudes and motives. Does that make sense? So it's living, it's active. Uh, it's penetrating, it's sharp, and it judges. Uh, so we chose, or well, we or in the early days chose the living and active word of God uh, to be how we were going to communicate this value. Now, I want to, there's one main passage I just want to teach from before we wrap up. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. If you can go to that real quick, Shay, while, while we're finding that, 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. While Shay's finding that, there's a reason we put living and active word of God first as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a big let word in theology. It's not just in theology, but I'm going to teach you a word today. The word is prolegomena. All right, can you say prolegomena? Okay, there it is. Pro, lego, men, hey. Uh, it means, essentially it means first things first. Or it means first words or first things. First things first. When you're studying theology, uh, you'll find, like if you're going to study like the, soteriology is the word for the study of salvation, Right? So if you, you say, well, salvation means this according to the Bible. Then you study hemartiology, which is a study of sin. You say, a sin is this according to the Bible. And then pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. See, I'm getting my money's worth out of this Bible college thing. And pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this according to the Bible. Well, what if you don't believe the Bible? All of those things kind of fall apart if you don't believe the Bible, Right? So the first step in theology is, dis, is determining that the Bible is trustworthy. So if you're going to study God, first things first, you've got to know what the Bible is, right? Because everything else is built on that. Otherwise, the Bible says means nothing. So the first thing you have to establish is that the Bible is authoritative and trustworthy. Is that, you got that? Because if you don't do that, then these other values mean nothing. Why do we believe in spirit-led prayer? Because Jesus taught about it in the Bible. Oh, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, then now we have a problem, right? Does that make sense why we put the We have to establish the authority of Scripture first. All right. Now, this is 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. It's a short little passage here. I love it. Paul writes this to Timothy. Timothy would have been a young pastor, probably about my age. I'm still young. I don't care what you say. Uh... And Paul writes this, Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I, I love this passage. Uh, there's five different things in here about why it's important to value Scripture. Uh, verse 13, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The best way for you to make sure you don't get deceived by a false, by a false teacher is to know the Bible. You've got to know the real stuff. Do you guys know which government agency oversees counterfeit bills? You probably, you know, no, you don't know. You would think the Treasury or maybe the IRS. Yes, yes, Corey, it's the Secret Service. I don't know why the Secret Service does that, but the Secret Service oversees counterfeiting. You think they'd have other things to do. But here's how they train people to spot counterfeits. They actually don't have you look at the counterfeit. They have you study the real thing. Because there could be so many different variations of counterfeit, right? There's no way to keep up with all of them. So actually what they have them do is study the real $100 bills. So that they get so familiar with what the authentic looks like, they can spot a fake from, I want to say a mile away, but probably not a mile away. They can spot a fake easily. And that's, you know, if you want to avoid false teaching, if you want to avoid being deceived and misled, you have to know what the Bible actually says, what it genuinely teaches, and then you'll spot false teaching. You'll also be able to tell what's false teaching and what's just a different opinion. Does that make sense? Uh, so, if, you know, especially it says right here, uh, they will, the imposters and evil men will proceed from bad to worse. I think that whatever level of false teaching we have now, it's, there's probably going to be more tomorrow and more the day after that. It's going to go from bad to worse so that there's more false teaching on the earth, which means that the need to understand the Bible, or we call that biblical literacy, is more important uh, now than it was yesterday. And it'll be more important tomorrow. It will only grow in importance. So those people that do that are both uh, being deceived themselves and deceiving others. Does that make sense? Why, it would be important to know the Bible if people are going around teaching in, inaccurate or false things. So number one, valuing the living and active word protects us from de uh, deceit, uh, false teaching. Verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you've learned them. Now, Paul is writing this to Timothy, and Timothy knew Paul, right? He did, if, in case you didn't know. Paul knew Timothy. They knew each other. They had a relationship. So when Paul gave Timothy instruction, Timothy could trust it because he knew him. So when you value the Bible, it gives you not only permission but an obligation to then look into the lives of those who are teaching you the Bible. Because if you value the, like that person or your relationship with that person more than you value the Bible, you might just swallow whatever they give you. But if you find the Bible, you judge their personal life. I mean, you, uh, knowing from whom you have learned them. Like Paul's saying, you know me, and you know my life, and because of that, you can trust me. Uh, so I'm doing two things here. I'm giving you permission, since I'm the primary teacher at our church, I'm giving you permission to look into my life. Uh, give me a warning before you do that. Give me at least like a day's notice. It's like a spiritual DHS that comes to my home. And, uh, but you have permission to, to look at my life and make a judgment about what level of truth I'm delivering. If my life doesn't back it up, and there are days where it doesn't, if my life doesn't back it up, you have a right to question that. All right, now that we've done enough of that. Also, those people you watch on TV or listen to on the radio or read their books or I guess that's it. Listen to their podcasts or whatever. Not only do you have a right, but you have an obligation to investigate their lives. I'm not saying you need to like go through their trash or anything. But how's their marriage doing? You know, how do they spend money? How, do, how are their kids doing? How's their church doing? You have a right and an obligation to look into those personal things to determine not just do you like the teaching, 
Because whether you like it or not is kind of inconsequential. But is this person qualified? Is there a lifestyle to back up the words that they're uh, elaborating or explaining? Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> All right. That one was a little scary. I need a job. All right, number 15. So first thing, uh, no, valuing the word protects you from, from those who are, uh, would, would deceive you or protects you from false teachers. It gives you permission to look into the lives of the teachers. Uh, 15, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So valuing scripture will give you wisdom, specifically the wisdom that leads to salvation. There's a lot of different opinions on what it means to be saved across the board. Scripture delivers to you the wisdom that leads to salvation. And man, I love the wisdom that's in the Bible. I love Proverbs. I love Ecclesiastes. I love some of the stuff Jesus said in the Gospels. He just like, it blows my mind. Like, how did you think of that? Did you know, Jesus, did you know they were going to ask you that? Because I never would have thought of this stuff. He's so sharp and so wise, and he doesn't fall into their traps, and he, he gets it. The level of wisdom that Jesus walked in uh, is, is, is incredible to me. And there's so much wisdom in the Bible. Uh, I know that my generation in particular... We love whatever's newest, right? Whatever's newest, whichever's fastest, whatever is freshest, we love it. But wisdom usually is found not in what's new, but what's ancient. What has worked for hundreds or thousands of years, that's usually where you can find wisdom. And Jeremiah actually told them not to go find the newest thing, but to walk on ancient paths. You know, if something, if something can last that long, there's got to be some wisdom in it. So I love uh, how, how Scripture makes us wise. Uh, actually says in Psalm 119, when David's writing, it sounds like he's bragging. But he says, your word makes me wiser than my teachers. Your precepts uh, gives me more information than my leaders. And I'm like, whoa, David, you know where people are going to be reading this, right? Because he sounds almost cocky, but he's saying, he's not taking credit for it. He's saying God's word has put him in that position. All right. He gives us wisdom. Uh, it enables us to understand under, uh, salvation. It establishes a standard in verse 16. So all scriptures inspired by God. Real quick, this phrase inspired by God in Greek is theopneustos. It means God breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Scripture sets a standard for your life. Uh, it establishes the standard. So a little Bible quiz here. How many books comprise the Bible? It's not a trick question. 66. All right, great. 66 books. Why not 67? Why not 70? Uh, those 66 books, we refer to them as the... Did you say canon? Okay. The canon. No, it is canon, not the Gary. The Gary of Scripture. Uh, the canon of Scripture. Now, don't think like Civil War canon. Right? That's not the word that's being used. Canon comes from a Hebrew word, kana, which means measuring rod. So when we say the canon of Scripture, we're saying the measuring rod. right? So you want to measure your life by this, which is why uh, it provides a standard. That's why it's helpful for teaching, reproof, or rebuke, Correction, training in righteousness. This is the standard for what we believe and how we live. This right here. Not, uh, let me just be a little better than my brother, or a little better than my sister, or a little better than my parents, or my neighbor. That's not the standard. This is the standard. And, and you will always have homework. There will always be something that you can work on. But there will also always be a promise of power uh, to live in that. Last thing, it equips us for ministry, uh, verse 17, so that the man of God or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, without Scripture, man, without the Holy Spirit and then Scripture, you are not equipped for ministry. I, I can't tell you how often, and I, I'm not thrilled about this, but people come, come to me, they need a little advice, and I just like, I wish I had a Bible verse for you. I wish I knew the Bible better and I could help you here. But I guess pray about it, you know. But when I do know what Scripture says in a given situation, it equips me to minister to them, and the same is true of you. 
as you learn the Bible, it will equip you to minister to other people. Uh, even if you don't have a chapter or verse that you can quote to them, you'll gain principles and insights, precepts uh, that, you can, that you can share with other people and it equips you to minister. Do you understand how that, how that works? All right. Now, uh, I want to just, a couple practical things. I, I spoke about how uh, I want to see revival. I mean, I, I want to see revival. I think I've seen p- snippets, but I've not lived in a sustained revival. And you need to understand something. This right here, this will not give you revival. Okay? This will give you revival. No church was ever revived with a closed Bible. No person ever experienced revival with a closed Bible. I don't care how many you have on your bookshelves. I don't care if you got one on your smartphone. You got to open it up. You know, Jesus is not ever going to ask you how many Bibles did you have at home, how much dust was on them. If you want to see revival and change in your life, this thing has to be open. And if it's, a, if it's on your tablet or your smartphone, you got to use it. Just having it there doesn't accomplish anything. The open Bible is what will lead you toward revival. A couple things I do uh, personally to help me respond to God through, through the Bible, and I think that's a commitment we each could make, is that when we read the Bible, we're going to respond to God. Uh, uh, I would rather you read the Bible four days a week and respond to God than read it seven days a week and not get anything out of it. I'd actually rather you read it seven days a week and get something every day. But if do you understand what I'm saying? Like, just reading it without responding makes you a Pharisee. I know that firsthand. A couple things I do with my Bible, I write in this thing. I mean, get a pen or a pencil or highlighter, whatever works for you, and write in your Bible. We're not we're not 500 years ago where there was one ancient copy of a scroll per town. You can have multiple Bibles. They're pretty cheap. They're easy to come across. Do it on your tablet or your phone. Write in your Bible. I underline. I circle. I write notes. I actually bought a Bible with big old fat margins so that I could write as many notes as I could write in it. Instead of one of those... It's heavy, though. (laughs) I'm working up my deltoids, carrying it around. But I don't... Just kidding. I don't have deltoids. Uh... But you know, write in your Bible, circle things, underline things. And then number one, it just helps your brain remember it better. But then a year from now, you'll read that passage and be like, oh, I remember when I, why I circled that. So first, write in your Bible. Secondly, I don't know what else to call this other than to say pray read, pray hyphen read your Bible. As you're reading it, if something strikes you, respond right there. Pray in response to what you're reading. My wife will tell you, I don't know what she thinks I do when I go down in the basement and read the Bible because I'll be sitting there quietly reading the Bible and then I'll, I'll read a line that strikes me and I'll go, oh! And then sometimes I just start laughing out loud like, oh my gosh! Because I read something that just strikes me and it's like speaking to exactly my, mo- my, my situation. She probably thinks I'm uh, watching YouTube videos or something in the basement, but uh, not that I'm not. But most of the time, I would like to think I'm reading the Bible. But man, I, I read the Bible verbally. I, and, and when I see something that strikes me, I try my best to pray in response right there. If you say, mm, that's interesting, I'm going to pray about that later, I promise you, you won't. You won't pray about it later. Nine times out of ten, you won't pray about it later. Pray right on the spot. And that might mean it takes you 15 minutes to read 10 verses. That's okay. God doesn't need you to finish the chapter. He wants to have an encounter with you through his word. So if it takes you a little longer, that's fine. Have have the encounter rather than check the chapter off. And then last thing about reading the Bible here. You will get more revelation, more insight. You will hear God's voice more often if your heart is committed to obeying whatever you read. If if you're not willing to obey, the Bible will become very dry to you. But when you open up the Bible and say, I'm going to obey whatever I read today, 
you will be amazed how that book comes alive. Uh, I think it was Vance Havner or A.W. Tozer that said, the only person that needs to fear the voice of God is the person who's already decided not to obey it. When you make a decision to obey whatever you read, you'll see that it really pops. It really comes off the page. uh, And you hear God's voice through it. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Did you know that? It's 176 verses. It's pretty long. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole psalm because uh, we need to be back here in a week and it might take that long. Psalm 119 says that God's word sanctifies, strengthens, makes wise, illuminates, sustains, and delivers us. But more than any of those things, it actually says that God's word revives us. And in Psalm 119, it uses a bunch of different words or terms for the word of God. It'll say, your precepts, your commands, your laws, your testimonies, and in some cases it even says your word. But the longest chapter in the Bible is actually about the Bible. So I'm not going to read all of Psalm 119, but I am going to read some of it. I I found a lot of the verses that speak about how the word revives us. So uh, I'm going to ask Kevin, if he wouldn't mind coming up, I just, it's, it helps to have a little piano sometimes uh, to, to get through these long stretches of scripture. I'm not going to read all 176 verses. It's just going to, it's going to probably take me about three minutes. I think you guys can stick with it. But I want you to see what Psalm 119, what David said about God's word. And then I want us to pray in response to what we hear in this passage. Does that make, you got that? All right. So Psalm 119 How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. I shall delight in your statutes and I shall not forget your word. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. May your, may your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word, so I will have an answer to him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. This is my comfort and my affliction that your, uh, affliction, that your word has revived me. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. Before I was afflicted and I went astray, but now I keep your word. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness and revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your ordinances. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Deliver me according to your word, and let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. 
Lord, we love your word because we love you. So if we love you, why wouldn't we love the things that you say? Your principles, your precepts, your commands, your testimonies, Lord. Everything that teaches us about you, we love because we love you. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would value your word, not just a book, a leather-bound book or a text, but the principles contained therein that teach us about you, that reveal the God of the universe to us. Father, I just want to expose the lie that we believe that your word is boring and hard to understand. That your Holy Spirit both illuminates and gives us understanding, but you also give us joy to love your word. And uh, to close up, I just want to ask maybe if two or three of you would stand and pray on behalf of our whole church, not not necessarily for you individually, but on behalf of the whole church, that we as a church would value uh, the living and active word. Father, we believe that your word is authoritative, that it was inerrant, that it is uh, inspired. And we submit ourselves to you by submitting ourselves to your word. And Lord, we commit, we will never try to change or skirt the Bible. And we will not throw it off or set it to the side. We also, Lord, won't use it as an ornament or an idol. The Bible's not a decoration for our house or our church. by the Holy Spirit uh, illuminate or light up the times that, that we spend in your word, whether it's a, a few moments or a longer period of time. Uh, but would you light those times up? Give us joy in the study of your word. Lord. Give us joy in the, even obeying your word. Lord. Lord, everything we've prayed, everything we've sang today, we sing and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, thank you guys. Uh, we have uh, food next door. Feel free to join us. You're also welcome to hang out in here for a little bit if you'd like to.